Good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10? If you're new with us, welcome to Calvary. It's good to see you this morning. And to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel verse by verse here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We find ourselves in John 10. And if you're new, let me just say this, as we have said many times already, that John 10 is a continuation of chapter 9. Chapter 9 is all about a lost sheep of Israel, a man born blind, who was rejected by the bad shepherds of Israel, in this case the Pharisees, who cast him out of their sheepfold, Judaism, and how the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, found him and made him a part of his fold, the church. This then becomes the background for the discourse Jesus gives in chapter 10, a discourse we're calling the Good Shepherd Discourse. Guys, this whole discourse centers around Jesus as the Good Shepherd in contrast to the false shepherds of Israel whom Jesus calls thieves and robbers. These would be the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and so on. These so-called shepherds, these wicked spiritual leaders, Jesus had only came to kill, steal, and destroy the sheep. Now, as we have pointed out, which makes chapter 9 really, and of course chapter 10, relate to all of us, is that, as we have pointed out already numerous times in our study of chapter 9, this blind man, born blind, the Holy Spirit makes it a point to tell us that, represents fallen humanity. All of us who are born spiritually blind in Adam. In that regard, we are all lost sheep, that the Good Shepherd needs to find, to open our eyes, and then lead us in our journey through life, which leads us then to chapter 10. So, picking it up in verse 1, just by way of review, Most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Well, of course they didn't. By this time, their hearts were so hardened and their ears so dull that they couldn't understand any spiritual truth because, you know, the time for them understanding what God had said was long since gone because they had hardened their hearts so much. They were now about five months away from their plot to crucify Christ. So by this time, their hearts were very hard. Uh, but Jesus gives them an illustration about him being the good shepherd. Now, let me just say by, uh, in way of, uh, by way of review, as we said last week, every town village had a communal or a common sheepfold near the center of town. And of course, you might have, I don't know how many shepherds in a town. You might have had five, six, seven, maybe more, each having a flock. And so they would all keep their sheep in this communal sheepfold. This is mostly during the winter months and into early spring. And in the morning, 
uh, they would come and the doorkeeper, of course, these sheepfolds were made out of the stone walls, about six to eight feet high, uh, and no roof, and a door that closed and locked. And uh, there was a guy they hired to watch over the sheep at night because they would bring the sheep into this common sheepfold, go home for the night, uh, the shepherds would. Uh, in the morning, of course, the shepherds would show up, and the doorkeeper knew all the shepherds. He would only open to the shepherds, of course, not to a thief or a robber. They would have to sneak uh, in some other way, maybe climb the wall uh, at some other part of the sheepfold and, uh, uh, and uh, take a couple of sheep by force, maybe slit their throats, throw the carcasses over the wall uh, they, so they could harvest the wool and so on. But uh, the doorkeeper would open the door to the true shepherds. Each one would stand by the opening of the door, and he would, and all the sheep had mixed together during the course of the night. It didn't matter. Because as the shepherd called his own sheep, he had a name for every one. They knew their shepherd's voice. They knew their name when the shepherd called them, and they would immediately leave the other sheep and follow the shepherd as he would then lead his flock out into the countryside, the hillside, the fields, where they would, uh, where they would uh, uh, feed on the pasture land, the grass, uh, all day long. At night, he would bring them back into the common sheepfold. Now, he could do this in the rainy season, winters, early spring, because there was a lot of grass growing around the village. And so that was, a, you know, he didn't have to go far is the idea. So at night, he could just bring them back into the common sheepfold. As the weather began to become warmer and then hot, he would have to, uh, the shepherd would have to go farther and farther away from town to find pasture, find some grass for the sheep to feed on. At one point, he gets, he got so far away from the village, it was no longer feasible to bring the sheep back to the common sheepfold. In that case, he would have to build a makeshift sheepfold for the sheep. Now, let me, let me get into verse 7, and I'm getting ahead of myself. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. And verse 7, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. And as we said last time, the Lord isn't mixing metaphors here. He had earlier said he was the shepherd, and now he says he's the door. Well, what does that mean? I mean, is he the shepherd or is he the door? He's both, okay? Because, again, as he got too far away from the village to go back at night, he would have to build a makeshift sheepfold uh, wherever he was, out of uh, branches, maybe dead branches on the ground, tumbleweed, maybe some rocks. He would have to build this enclosure. And after he would lead each of his sheep into the sheepfold, examining them first to make sure they had no burrs, no cuts that he would have to tend to. After he led his sheep into the sheepfold for the night, he himself, the shepherd, would lay across the opening and literally become the door of the sheepfold. He would do this so that no sheep could get out and no predator could get in unless it stepped on the shepherd and he would then deal with the predator. And um, that really is the background to what Jesus is talking about. Now, I do want to key in on verses 7 and verses, uh, verse 7 and 9 uh, for the re remainder of our time this morning where Jesus said in verse 7, uh, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
Or in other words, I'm the door into the sheepfold. I am the door, verse 9. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Obviously, he's talking about a different sheepfold. Uh, we would say it's the sheepfold of the church, but ultimately the sheepfold of heaven. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that he and he alone is the door that leads to salvation. Well, he made that abundantly clear in John 14, verse 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. Guys, and most of you know this, I'm, I'm sure, there's only one entrance into salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the door. What he, is what he's saying here, right? But listen, any door that leads to something of great value is going to be locked. And likewise, the door leading to salvation is locked and needs a key, quote-unquote, to open it. What is the key that unlocks the door and allows a person to enter into Christ and find salvation? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. The gospel is the salvation what a key is to a lock. However, we all know that a key won't unlock a door if it's somehow gotten bent or twisted. A key has to be straight and true if it's going to be used to open a door. And the same is true with the gospel. If the gospel has been twisted, distorted, or perverted in any way, well, neither will it be able to unlock the door that leads to salvation. And Satan knows that only too well. And so he has worked very hard over the centuries to twist and distort the gospel of Jesus Christ, to keep the door of salvation locked so that people, even if, so that to uh, keep the door of salvation locked to a person, even if a person believes with all their heart in a gospel, if it's a false gospel, well, a false gospel will not open the door of salvation to them. Look, Satan's lies masquerading as God's truth won't save anybody. Only the true gospel can open the door of salvation. Jesus said, I'm the door. And allow them to enter into eternal life through Christ, of course. Again, he is the door. Jesus said to the Pharisees earlier in John chapter 8 that they were of their father, the devil. He said, he, the devil, is the father of lies. There is no truth in him. And as the father of lies, his number one lie is to try to pervert the gospel. So that people, although believing, Satan knows that most people are not going to be atheists. Uh, we have Inherently, we want to believe in something. Inherently, there is something that says to us that there is more to life than this. This reality that, that you know, we have been made for more than just this. They're making money and partying and whatever else people think life's all about. Most people know inherently that life is more than just making money and uh, drinking and partying and sleeping around and that kind of thing. Satan, as the father of lies, knows that most people are going to be believers in something. So what he does is he tries to feed them false things to believe in. In, in our context a false gospel, so that even though believing with all their heart, it will not open the door of salvation to them. Even though he assures them 
that yes, they are saved and they have the true gospel. Guys, every cult that has come down the pike, Christian-based cult, believes that they have the true gospel. In fact, they're the only ones that have the true gospel. Joseph Smith Jr., the founder of the Mormon church, had an angel called the angel Moroni appear to him. And the angel Moroni told Joseph Smith that the gospel had been corrupted for 1,900 years. Nobody was saved. And I'm here to give you the true gospel. And so put on these magic glasses and you can read the tablets of Nephi and, not, and decipher the Egyptian hieroglyphics and, and it's going to be the Book of Mormon and you're going to have the truth. You're the only one that will have the true gospel. But Satan is a master deceiver and he targets the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the thing he tries to pervert, distort, and uh, indulge primarily. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11, starting with verse 3. Paul said, But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent, Satan, deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received from us, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. What Paul is saying is this. We came to you with the true gospel based on the true Jesus from the Holy Spirit. And now that we're gone, you're letting these false teachers come in and feed you another gospel, a corrupted gospel, uh, about a different Jesus, not the Lord Jesus Christ that we preached, from a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit, some demon feeding you this stuff. This is how Satan works. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, starting with verse 6. He said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. In other words, <laughs> Paul is saying, look, these people are very clever, these false teachers. They're feeding you a different gospel, but it's based on the true gospel. You know, the devil takes a lot of truth, mixes just enough error into it that it becomes corrupted and not truth, okay? You can take the gospel of Jesus Christ and you can mix a little bit of error and pervert the whole thing. It's no longer the true gospel. That's what Paul's saying. They're very clever, very crafty. They've taken the true gospel and twisted it, perverted it just enough to make it of the devil but it sounds like the real gospel, is what he's saying. Verse 7, which is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So back in Paul's day, the devil was working very hard to pervert the true gospel, to bend, twist, distort it. it it's going on to our, to our day. Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, verse 15, to beware of false teachers who come dressed in sheep's clothing. In other words, who wore sheep's clothing? The shepherds. 
When Paul said, beware of false prophets, false teachers who will come to you dressed in sheep's clothing, what he is saying is who will come to you disguised as true pastors, true shepherds. He said they're like spiritual traffic cops standing in front of the entrance that is the narrow way, the, the true way to heaven, which is Christ and the cross. But they're blocking that entrance the narrow way, and they're waving people down like spiritual traffic cops down the broad way that is, by the way, marked this way to God, not marked this way to hell. Nobody go down uh, a broad way, a way marked this way to hell. No, it's marked this way to God, this way to heaven. But Jesus said it doesn't lead to God. It doesn't lead to heaven. It leads to destruction. The Broadway, what is it? Well, it's a very inclusive, tolerant way like we see today. You can be, you know, anything you want to be. Just love God, believe in God. You can be homosexual. You can be this or that. You can, you know, whatever. Because the way we're presenting the false church is a very tolerant, inclusive way. It's the way of love. We don't judge anybody, see? It's the way of working for the poor and helping the homeless. And this kind of thing, not that that's bad. I'm not putting down that. But if that's your way to get into heaven by you know, working at the lo local food pantry or building you know, houses with humanity, uh, houses for humanity or something, that's not going to get you into heaven. See, this is why it's, it's, it's a way that seems right. But in the end thereof, it's the way of death, the broad way. Jesus said, with regard to false teachers, pastors, preachers, and prophets, beware. I'm not sure he ever used that word with anything else. Beware when it comes to those teaching false doctrine. Beware because they are very, very dangerous because they can affect a person's eternity if their lies are embraced. And guys, there's nothing more important than where you spend eternity. There's nothing more important than you getting it right and make sure you have the right Jesus and the right gospel, that you're going down the right way, the narrow way. Because there are so many lies out there, and Jesus said they would escalate the closer we got to his return. He said the world would be flooded with false Christ and false prophets and false doctrines, so much so that even the elect, if it were possible, could be deceived. But we have the truth. We have the truth. These, but these books are very dangerous. All the New Testament writers warned us, including the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't write the New Testament, but is, is the New Testament, basically. Peter said, 2 Peter 2.18, Beware because these false teachers speak great swelling words of emptiness. I love that. What's he saying? They're very good communicators. They're very good orators. I watch some of these characters on TV, and i got to hand it to them. They are very good communicators. They can really make a point. They can really turn a phrase they, they really have a, a way of endearing themselves to an audience because they just know how to talk. And there's a lot of people that associate a great communicator with a presenter of truth. That is a fatal mistake. The devil is probably the best communicator in the universe apart from God Almighty. Just because somebody can really preach good, okay, doesn't mean they're preaching the truth. You've got to go back and make sure you check it against what the Bible says, right? They speak great swelling words of emptiness. Peter also said, 
They twist the scriptures to their own destruction and the destruction of others. They're teaching uh, based on scripture, but they twist the scriptures and turn it into damning heresy. Lies that will send people to hell if embraced. I will have you turn to this one, 2 Peter 2. I mean, boy, you really see this in Peter's second epistle, how burdened he was as a good shepherd. How burdened he was for many who had uh, started following these false shepherds who were like Pied Pipers leading them down the road to hell. And Peter tries to warn us every which place he can, and he's not the only one. But in 2 Peter 2, starting with verse 1, he said, but there were also false, and I'm going to paraphrase a little, there were also false prophets among God's people in the Old Testament period, even as there will be false teachers among God's people in the New Testament age, the church age, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is teachings that if believed will damn a person to hell. Damning heresies. Even denying the Lord who bought them. Denying his deity, denying his his uh, humanity, uh, all kinds of ways people deny. He didn't rise from the dead bodily. He was a ghost, a spirit, a phantom. So a lot of ways that people deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he's not the Lord God of all. He's the brother of Lucifer, or he was created by God and is Michael the archangel. So a lot of ways people deny the Lord Jesus Christ. This is heresy, damning heresy. Denying the Lord who bought them and will bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Paraphrase, their day is coming. Unfortunately, by the time their day comes, and they stand before the Lord to be judged, they will have misled thousands and in some cases millions, depending on the size and scope of their TV ministries. If Satan can distort, if he can twist the gospel, he can keep the door of salvation locked to people, and that is why we must know the true gospel and be able to share it accurately. Several years ago, we did a whole series entitled, I Want to Be Saved, Can You Help Me? I want to be saved, can you help me? Where we study the true gospel in detail. It came out of Acts chapter 10 and was based on how the Roman centurion Cornelius wanted to know how he could be saved. And so God sent to him and his family, the apostle Peter and a couple of servants of Peter's, sent him to the house of Cornelius to give him the true gospel. At that time, the time we did this series, we said that there are many genuine Christians who really don't know what's involved in a true biblical presentation of the gospel. Here, here is, here's their gospel. Just believe in Jesus. Wow. Wow. J just believe in Jesus. That's all I know. Just believe in Jesus. Well, you don't know much then. Because, you know, what, what Jesus are you talking about? Okay, what, what, believe, what does that mean? The devil believes and trembles. The demons. What, what, what are you talking about? When we set that study up, introduced it to the church, we asked the church at that time a question. 
if someone came to you and asked you, I want to be saved, can you help me? What would you tell them? Well, in looking at Acts 10, we said that that was essentially the very question Cornelius posed to Peter. Peter, I want to be saved, can you help me? And then Peter launched into a gospel presentation in chapter 10 of the book of Acts that I believe is probably the finest presentation of the gospel you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. And we studied over the next several weeks his response, his response to Cornelius and his family, giving them the true gospel. If you study the passage in Acts 10, you'll notice that Peter was a faithful sower of the gospel and that he simply presented the basic gospel without trying to, you know, spice it up by promising them, you know, here's the goodies that will be yours if you accept Jesus as your Savior, okay? I mean, he didn't tell them God would give them health and wealth if they came to Christ. He didn't try to appeal to their felt needs as a way to motivate them to receive the gospel. You know, come to Jesus and he'll make you happy and fulfilled and joyful, etc. Nothing like that. I mean, too many Christians, in an effort to make the gospel more appealing, turn into salesmen for Jesus, quote unquote. Where they have to, they think, they have to present the gospel as some kind of a miracle cure to cure all the ills of life. I mean, you see these commercials on TV, right? You know, our product will cure anything, you know? Just take these supplements every day or this, whatever, and you know, back in the old days of our, our country's history, you had the snake oil salesman, right? And they would sell the snake oil as a cure for, for everything from, you know, baldness to bad breath or something. I don't know. It, it, it cured everything. Of course, they were able to get away with it because people were unlearned. They were gullible. Just like today, when Christians turn into these salesmen for Jesus, quote-unquote, they become the spiritual modern equivalent of the snake oil salesmen back in the old days. And they get away with it, peddling a false gospel, promising people all kinds of goodies, because people are ignorant. And that is the church's fault today. There are many pastors who do not teach, the church, uh, the, the teach their people the truth. Uh, again, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'll touch on a few in a second. But verse by verse teaching through the Word of God used to be the staple in the church years ago. Now it's a rarity. People come to me uh, every so often and say, you're teaching verse by verse. Nobody's doing that anymore. Well, there are a few. We've looked. We can't find a church that keeps... You're the only one in the area. Well, I'm sure there's others. But it is far and few between. And when you teach people verse by verse, you teach them what Paul said is the whole counsel of God. It's very hard for somebody to deceive you if you've been taught verse by verse through the Word of God uh, because now you have a context, you have a, a proper understanding of the whole idea of what God is saying in a passage or in a, an epistle? Amazing. But they get away with it today. And um, Peter didn't feel the need to do that. He didn't feel the need to spice it up or become a salesman for Jesus. And you know why? 
because Peter knew the power to change a life resided in the gospel message, not in the way the messenger related it to people. Remember the parable of the of the uh, the uh, sower that went out to sow the seed of the word, right? And Jesus talked about it. there was a sower that went out to sow the seed. Okay, very common thing in those days. They would sling, sling a bag of seed over their shoulder, and they would walk up and down the furrows and take handfuls of seed. And the Greek word is broadcast the seed. That's interesting. We broadcast in a different way the seed of God. And it, it would sow the seed. The seed would fall on four different types of soil. And when Jesus uh, explained the parable, he said, well, the seed is the word of God. It's the gospel. The soil is different kinds of hearts. Okay, Lord, who's the sower? He doesn't tell us. Why? It doesn't matter. The sower is irrelevant. Because the power is not in the sower. It's in the seed, right? To bring forth life. doesn't matter if the sower is Jew, Gentile. doesn't matter if he's a believer or even an unbeliever. I've heard stories where people, unbelievers raised in a Christian home, knew the gospel flat, went to Awana's growing up, the whole nine yards, talking to a friend that was tripped up on heroin back in the 60s in the Jesus movement days. Guy was tripped out on heroin, said living in a commune with his gal, and others, and she was brought up in a Christian home, and he said, oh, I wish I could get free of this poison. She said, well, I know how you can do it, but I'm not going to tell you because you're going to get free and then leave, and I'll be up by myself here. What are you talking about? Well, I know what will set you free. What do you got to tell me? So she shared the gospel with him. Guy goes into the other room, gets on his knees, receives Christ, instantly delivered, never had a, never had a withdrawal, walks out of there a free man, and she herself was not even saved. Because the power to change a life resides in the gospel. The word of God, not in the sower. It doesn't matter who sows it. Boy, he didn't tell us. Look, guys, what we are called to do is just faithfully declare the truth. Just give the gospel. You know, you don't have to embellish it. You don't have to tell people it's a, it, it'll cure all the ills of life. That's a lie. People say, you know, receive Jesus. All your problems will be over. Let me tell you something. When I received Jesus, a lot of my problems ended right there. What they didn't tell me is the next day I got a whole new group of problems. Now the devil's after me. You know, he's trying to kick my teeth in because I want to—I love Jesus and I want to serve him. They don't tell you that, you know, the fine print, you know. Well, that's okay. Count the cost. I understand that. I understand that. But just give the gospel. I, I encourage you to go online and listen to that series because uh, you know, if you're really interested, which you should be, hopefully you are. Uh, I want to be safe. Can you help me? But but for our purposes this morning, for the next couple of weeks, I want to just uh, I'll condense it down to its basic points. Okay, I want you to turn to Acts 10. Let's look at that passage though. This is the one that. Peter, the words Peter gave Cornelius and his family, this is the, the passage we were talking about. It starts in Acts 10, verses, uh, verse 36. You can look at the whole passage on your own. So he's, he's, he's talking to Cornelius now and his family. He said, the word, of, the word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. 
And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed, the religious leaders, by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Guys, the first element of the gospel really isn't an element of the gospel. Uh-oh, you got me now. What, what are you talking about? The first point in sharing the gospel is really not the gospel itself. It's what we'll call maybe the introduction, okay? The introduction. Um, it appears in this passage last, verse 42, and um, it really isn't essential for salvation, but is more of the motivation to get people moving in the direction of salvation. Here it is. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus, who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. I'll read these two scriptures to you. Write them down. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul said to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He's going to judge. 1 Peter 4, 5. Peter said, All of humanity will stand before him and give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, the word, the word gospel literally means good news, which implies the presence of something bad, right? I mean, if I run up to you and go, hey, I have good news. Well, usually what's going on is something bad is happening, and now this person has good news, which is designed to kind of alleviate the problem, fix it, whatever, You can't really appreciate the good news without seeing it in the context of the bad news. The bad news that makes the gospel such good news is that man, having rebelled in the Garden of Eden, was doomed to spend eternity in hell. That was the bad news. And this would be the judgment that all of Adam's descendants, the whole human race, would be forced to endure. And listen, there was nothing any of us could do to escape that eternal judgment. That was the bad news. Adam blew it for all of us, all of his descendants. When he sinned against God, he fell. And as the father of humanity, as he procreated, he passed that sin, that fallen nature to each of his children those fathers pass it to their children and so on. The bad news is because we are all born of Adam, we are all born fallen sinners, the wrath of God abides on all of us and there's nothing we could do to change that. That was the bad news. The good news, but God. I love those two words. Come out of Ephesians 2, don't they? Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Grace means a gift. Eternal life is a gift. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. That, folks, is truly good news. How that God saved us from hell by sending His Son. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe on Jesus would not have to perish in hell but have everlasting life. God sent His Son to die in our place on Calvary's cross. God sent His Son that we might be spared the fires of hell. And I know immediately some people would, would uh, you know, respond and would object by saying, well, now wait a minute. I don't want to scare people into heaven all right, by talking about hell. I just want to tell them about the love of God. See? Look, that's noble. And I love talking about God's love too. But you have to understand, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. In fact, he talked about hell more than heaven or even love. And he did so because he didn't want anyone to go there, to go to hell. But guys, today almost all evangelism is based on the love of God. Almost all evangelism today is based on the love of God. We hear very little based on coming judgment. Do you realize that nowhere in the book of Acts, this, this was shocking to me when I first heard someone say this, and so I, I, I studied it for myself. Do you realize that nowhere in the book of Acts does anyone, apostle or anyone else, ever use the love of God as a basis for presenting the gospel? That may come as a little bit of a shock. You won't find the apostles or anyone else who shared the gospel doing so based on God's love. It was always based on coming judgment and Jesus came to save you from what's coming. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't ever talk about God's love when we witness to people. But there must be a balance. I'm not saying you it's all fire and brimstone, all hell, all the time. But it can't be all love all the time either. There's got to be a balance, which is healthy and biblical, by the way. Look, without any talk of coming judgment, the gospel is reduced, listen, from an emergency alert siren to happy talk. To happy talk. You know, this, this might come as news to a lot of modern preachers. The gospel isn't a message that is designed to make people feel good or happy about themselves. You know, this idea that you come to church, all we're going to do is tell you how much God loves you. Well, that's great. But that's not the whole story. Right? And if that's the goal, just to keep telling people how wonderful they are, God loves them, and God's got a wonderful plan for their life, and so on and so forth, they walk out of there feeling good about themselves. Hey, God loves me, you know? God's got all kinds of good stuff for me. 
The true gospel was never designed to make people feel good about themselves or happy necessarily, except to be happy about not having to go to hell. Listen to me. The true gospel is a brutal indictment of our sinful lives and how only by Jesus, God, having to come down, only by Jesus dying on the cross for us is their hope of escaping hell. In that regard, the gospel is a warning, warning people to flee judgment by running to Christ, into Christ for safety. It's kind of like, you know, we live in the Midwest and you get the tornadoes and the tornado sirens, right? Think of it, the gospel is a tornado siren for a second, okay? Say you're, you know, sleeping in your bed three o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden you hear the, the town or tornado sirens start to blast, right? How does that make you feel? Comforted, happy, joyful. Oh, I love to hear that thing. I just lay here and <laughs> listen to it for hours. It scares you. It startles you. It tells you, get up. Something bad is coming. You better take shelter somewhere, a place of safety, refuge, right? That's what the gospel was designed to be. God's uh, alert siren telling people something bad is coming. It's called judgment. There is safety in Christ, but you have to run to Christ. Receive him as your Savior. Take refuge in him because only in him is there safety from the judgment that is coming. That's what the gospel was intended to be by God. Not happy talk. Too many pastors and preachers have stopped urging people to receive Jesus as the one who will save them from hell. Instead, they have turned him into a sanctified butler whose job it is to save them from all the discomforts of life. I think one pastor put it well. He said, and I quote, For these folks, prayer then becomes ringing the little bell, calling for butler Jesus to bring them up another pillow. Boy, that is modern-day Christianity in America. I don't know what it is. Somewhere along the line, the preaching of the cross, take up your cross and follow me. I don't know where that got... That, that's been discarded. You know, John the Baptist and Jesus himself were both hellfire and damnation preachers. Both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ were both hellfire and damnation preachers. You don't think Jesus was a hellfire and damnation preacher? Read Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. He's coming to baptize some with fire, judgment, rebels. The whole point of preach, in preaching the gospel is to tell people that they are lost and hell-bound and there's nothing they can do about that. But God so loved them that he gave his son that if they will believe, can't work your way out of hell, but if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did for you, who he is, what he did, God will save you from that destiny. Save me from what? See, I was telling first service, and, and, and we're done. I just want to. I was telling first service that um, I was um, 
talking to a, a pastor, or I was watching, I can't remember what it was, but this woman heard the gospel. She was in church or something, and afterwards she goes up to the pastor and says, Pastor, you, you said that Jesus wants to save me, but can you tell me, save me from what? There are people today, because of the church, has so watered down the truth that they don't know what being saved means. They really don't. I blame that. I blame the, the, the leaders in the church for that. There was a time 50, 60, 70 years ago, every unbeliever knew what it meant when we say you need to be saved. They all knew what that meant, saved from the fires of hell. Of course, today they're not so sure. you got pastors on TV saying, no, Jesus wants to save you, but save me from what? Well, save you from poverty, depression, low self-esteem, I've heard. No. He wants to save them from eternal judgment in hell. That kind of preaching used to dominate pulpits all across this nation and was used by God to bring about periods of revival and the great awakenings. One of those preachers was Jonathan Edwards. You all remember or heard of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he, he preached a sermon that was used by God to really spark a great awakening. Here's the title. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, can you imagine that on the marquee in front of a church today? And how many people would turn in to hear that message? Oh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Oh, boy, i got to hear that. During that message, he basically said that, you know, people are walking through life, and what they're walking on often can't support. He thought about their life, basically, and what they're pursuing. But, you know, it, 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 the, the walkway they're walking on is so rotten that at any time they could plunge headlong into hell, eternal hell fire, right? And it was amazing. Uh, he, he just, I think in another place he said men are walking over the, uh, the icy plank over the pit of hell and at any time their foot could slip and they could fall headlong into destruction. If you've ever studied that message, that sermon, Here's what be, and people say, well, you know what? He was a flamboyant, charismatic preacher, and that's why people responded. Because here's what happened. As he was uh, giving this message, well, i got to tell you this, because you, you won't appreciate the context. People say skeptics, critics, well, you know, that was only because he was a, a, a charismatic preacher. And these were simple farmers. And he was able to, through his just... You know, verbiage just to, to, to really uh, carry them along and they, uh, the emotion of the moment got the best of these simple folks. People who say they didn't know Jonathan Edwards. Not, I didn't know him personally either, uh, although it may look like it at times. Uh, you know, but, thank you. Um, but Jonathan Edwards, because, and these were Puritan preachers, because he didn't want to, to preach to the flesh, the emotion, he would read his messages, he, he would write them out longhand, and then he would read them with the manuscript held close to his face. And he would just read in a very monotone way, every once in a while dropping the manuscript to stare blankly and emotionlessly at the back of the church before he would raise the manuscript and continue preaching. Because he didn't want to be flamboyant and, uh, and such where people were moved with emotion. He wanted the Spirit to be the one to move these people. And boy, did the Spirit ever. As Edwards was reading his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, at one point there was a moan from somebody in the congregation, and then another, and then somebody shrieked, and another one shrieked. 
And then they begin to fall out of their pews and begin to crawl to the front of the church, repenting, confessing sins, asking for mercy from God. And he had a chance to pray over a whole bunch of them. That was the Holy Spirit at work. That was not, you know, he just gave the gospel, but he made sure that people understood that judgment is coming. And the only way to escape that judgment is to believe the gospel. And he gave them the true gospel. That's the introduction, okay? Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And hopefully that causes a person's heart to stir and say, well, if judgment's coming, what can I do to escape the coming judgment? Well, that becomes then the first word of the gospel. Repent. i got to leave it there. Okay? Got to come back. Because I want to look at these. There's not a lot of them. The gospel is simple. You introduce often the idea that, look, judgment's coming. You've got to flee to Christ to escape the wrath to come. Well, how do I do that? First of all, you repent. And that's the first word of the gospel. I'll show you why it is as we continue on next time in this little mini-series that I've entitled The Gospel, The Gospel, The Key to Salvation. The key to salvation. Looking at what the true gospel is really all about. So come on back and we'll continue. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us in your word your truth. But Father, there are those who twist the scriptures to their own destruction and to those that will listen to them. Father, we pray that you give us grace to know the truth and to speak the truth. To not read into your word what we wanted to say but we'll, we'll uh, exegete out of it what you have actually said that we might share your truth with others, and especially the true gospel. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.